I would like to introduce Jeff Epstein, the operating partner at Bessemer Venture Partners um, and former EVP and CFO of Oracle, and he will introduce our guest today. Terrific. Uh, thank you very much, Carrie. And our guest is Gina Mastantuno, who's the Chief Financial Officer at ServiceNow, has had a very distinguished career in a number of companies. We'll hear all about it today. And Gina, welcome. I, I'd like to start by uh, you sharing with the, the group the story that you told me about a Valentine's Day type of uh, experience. You were in love, you were thinking of changing jobs, you were going to go cross country, but it didn't quite turn out that way. And it was a pivotal time in your career. So tell us all about that story. It was, it was. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for having me today. And I thought given that it's Valentine's Day, it was a, a fitting story to start out with, right? Certainly a, a dramatic moment in my career. And so I'll set the stage. I was in a long distance relationship. So I'm born and raised in New York. So East Coast, um, my entire career until 2013. Um, but he was on the West Coast and we had been dating for about four years and I was planning to move west for sunnier days, and we were going to take our relationship to to the next level. So at that time, I I resigned from the firm I was working with. Um, I actually was up for promotion there, and so I had gotten uh, my boss called me in and said, "We want to promote you." And I said, "Time out. I think I'm going to make um, a life change and and move to the West Coast." So thank you so much. But in fact, I. I'm going to resign um, with ample warning. I think it was like two months. Um, but literally, I, I, I'd given up my apartment. I had packed my suitcases, about to leave like a week later. Um, and my boyfriend shows up at my basically empty apartment and, um, and breaks up with me. <laughs> and so, as you can imagine, um, it was a pivotal moment that we we both he realized probably before i did that we really wanted different things in life and so um it was a pivotal moment as you can imagine as it all sunk in um but i could have easily called back my boss and gotten that job back and gotten that promotion um or i could have stepped back and reevaluate my life and set it off in a new direction and i'm sure we'll go into my my how i grew up but i basically had worked since I was 12 years old and I was just about to be 30. And I basically said, let me pack my bags and take a little time off and make the most of it. So I bought a one-way ticket and traveled for six months, skydiving, exploring, and just being curious. And so what I, what I, what, what resulted really was, you know, traveling alone allowed me to really focus on myself and figure out, what what it was that I really wanted out of my career and out of my life. Um, so when I returned, I was more driven than ever and hyper-focused and just excited to push myself to that next level. And so I accepted a media role at IAC Interactive Corp, which is Barry Diller's uh, media and internet company, which basically put me back on track from a career perspective um, and on track to be the international CFO of Revlon, five years later. Um, and so if anyone's wondering about that boyfriend, he's uh, he's happily living his best life in Bali, still unmarried, no kids. Um, and I met the man of my dreams a couple of years later and, and we have two amazing sons. And 
why I think this story is important is because in addition to focusing on what, what my, what I wanted my career to be, I also focused on what I needed to be successful in that and what, what I really wanted my life to be and what I wanted in a significant other. And I really wanted someone who's going to be supportive of my career ambitions. And that's exactly what happened. My husband is my visit, my biggest cheerleader and supporter. Um, and marrying him was the best decision I ever made. And I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be as successful as a CFO if not for the support um, that that I get from him. So happy ending all around, but but definitely a pivotal moment. And, and what I like to talk about is, is how sometimes life ha hands you lemons, right? And you make lemonade and you move forward and it makes you stronger as a result. And so um, that was a, a an, an interesting time in my life. And certainly I didn't, it didn't feel like lemonade at the time, but um, but certainly was the best decision in in the long run. And and it's part of who I am today as a result of that. What an incredible story, Gina. Thank, thank you for sharing that personal side and the professional side as well. You said you started work at age 12. I know we grew up not too far from each other in Long Island in the suburbs of New York. What were you doing at age 12? Were you a little uh, CFO? No. Oh, no. I mean, I was, I was, I was making money. I was babysitting, right? So I was babysitting from 12 until I was probably 15. And then I did, you know, I had little jobs in the mall at Express at the time. Um, and then I started waitressing at, at 16. You know, I grew up in Long Island, as we talked about, um, and I'm the first in my family to go to college. So I put myself through college through all those jobs. Um, and so, you know, I certainly, I, 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 I I had a very great upbringing and a great life, but but it wasn't the easiest. And I certainly don't come from a place where, you know, going to college was a given, right? And so the fact that I pushed myself outside my comfort zone and probably outside the expectations of, of most people in, in my family, um, you can become anything that you want to become, even if you don't come from a wealthy family, even if you're not born with a silver spoon in, in, in your mouth. And, and so that's certainly who I am. And, you know, I get the question all the time is, did you know you wanted to be a CFO? I'm like, not at all. When I graduated from university or going into university, I didn't even think it was an option. There were no CFOs that looked like me that were women. Um, what I did know is that I wanted to make sure that I wouldn't have to rely on anyone else. And I wanted to make sure that I had a career that I can take care of myself. And so um, I always wanted to go into business. Wasn't quite sure what that meant at 17 and 18. My uh, my three younger brothers will all often say, you you, all, you wanted to go in business because you wanted to be a girl boss because you bossed us all around all, all the time. Um, but what I did find is that I knew even within a recession, accountants would always be needed. And so I went to school for accounting um, because in good times and bad times, accountants um, are always needed. So job security was, was, was high on the list, right? And so I studied, uh, I studied accounting at the State University of New York at Albany, and I came out um, and worked directly for Ernst & Young upon graduation. So definitely a, not necessarily a, a typical background for, for a CFO, but, uh, but it, was, uh, it was a fun time for sure. 
Well, when you were at EY, uh, did there come a time where they said you can take this path and then eventually become a partner, or you've decided to leave and think about a different career path? What was that? How how long were you an accountant for at EY, and what was your thinking from a career point of view? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, I, I truly believe that the education I had at Ernst & Young was a pivotal part of where I am today. Just the... Um, the breadth of experience that you get at, at, at these big four, it was big eight at, at the time, is just phenomenal. And so I was there for six and a half years and really enjoyed it, but, but also realized that I probably didn't want to be a partner there, right? That wasn't the end goal. I didn't really know what the end goal was at that point in time, but I didn't want to be uh, a partner in an in, in accounting firm. So I did think it was really important to stick around at least five years and become manager because just again, that experience and the education that you get there is I think second to none. Um, but about six and a half years I was there and then I decided to go into out of, pub, out of public accounting and into kind of my first um, public company role as a director of accounting. And so about six and a half years. And you, you talked about the training you got there. A friend of mine calls them firms like the big four academy companies, also the big investment banks, the big consulting firms, where you go there, they give you terrific training. And if you can do that in the first couple of years of your life, it, it lasts your whole career. Uh, so where do you go next? Where where did I go next? Go next after yeah, so right out of accounting, I went to Triarch companies big holding company um, that was very focused on buying distressed assets and then turning them around and then either taking them public or selling them off. Um, and so that was a great experience for me, really understanding the intricacies of M&A. Um, and then from an operational perspective, when, you know, M&A is all fun when you're doing like the acquisition part. But when you actually now have to go in and operationalize that asset and really help um, drive drive it and grow it, that was super interesting to me. And so that's when I first got a taste of really the operational side of business, and and I enjoyed it tremendously. From there, I took the hiatus that 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 we talked about earlier, uh, and when I came back, I started at um, IAC Interactive Corp. The one thing I'll say about my career is that a few things. So number one, I tend to get that like six, seven year itch. <laughs> and that's when I tend to try something different, push myself outside my comfort zone, take a risk um, and do something different. The great thing about finance is that from an industry perspective, for the most part, your skills are really transferable. And so if, if you're like me who is forever curious and always wanting to continue to learn and grow and develop. I found that at times switching industries could be a great impetus for continuing that learning journey and starting, starting fresh, but also having that subject matter expertise of finance. And so um, that's been a, that's been a trend in my career, kind of thinking about how I can continue to grow and learn and develop. Um, but also taking some pretty big risks along the way. And when I left IAC, you know, one of the stories I tell all the time is I ended up going to Revlon 
And that was a really in- interesting story because I had gone in for a job interview and it would, and the job interview I almost didn't go for because it was assistant controller role. And I was currently the assistant controller at IAC. And so I was like, why would I do that? But the recruiter was like, you know what, Gina, take the meeting. It's a great new young CFO. Revlon's going through a big change and, and, and revitalization. Just take the meeting. I was on the fence, but I said, yeah, I'll go and take the meeting. Met this new young CFO. We connected immediately. Um, and he basically said, I don't want you for this, for this assistant controller role. I have this other role for you that could be really, really interesting. I said, tell me about it. And it was international CFO. Now, I, every role that I had had, IAC, Triarch, obviously Ernst & Young, was all domestic. Um, and it was all accounting. So he was an international CFO, really breadth of finance, not just account- accounting. It was a big leap for me, a big risk. Um, at the time, also, Revlon was trading at only a dollar stock and was really going through, through this transformation as we talked about. But he was willing to take a risk on me, right? I hadn't done international. I hadn't done a whole lot of what was in the job description. Um, and I took a risk on the company and on him. And I'll tell you that it was the best decision that I could have ever made for my career because it really expanded the, the portfolio of, of skills that I had as a result of taking that, that role. And so, um, you know, taking risks and pushing yourself outside your comfort zone is, is where I have found that I have grown the most and been given the most opportunity when I'm willing to do that. That's a terrific story, Gina. Revlon, I, I think of it as a global company. Were, were you in dozens of countries around the world? What, what was the scope of the international? Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah, dozens of countries around the world. It's a very, very global brand. But interesting, when I had joined it, um, we were very, we were a global brand. But if you really peel back the onion, we were a U.S. company that ex- exported goods. And if you think about the beauty category, what a woman wants to put on her face in the U.S. is very different than what a woman wants to put on her face on Brazil or South America, sorry, South Africa, Hong Kong, China. And so really thinking about the brand portfolio and the product mix from an international perspective was something that we really drove. Um, Super interesting. And I just I loved everything about that job. Um, I really loved the people there. I loved, I loved having a product that I could touch and feel and use. Um, and so I think that again, coming from, you know, purely domestic into that role, it also brought in my global perspective and really helped me think much more globally than I had ever before. Did you get a chance to travel around the world? And where, what oh, kind of for sure. I was all over the place. I was in I was in China, I was in Hong Kong, I was in South Africa, I was uh, in many countries in Europe, um, I was in Australia, New Zealand, like across the world, uh, Mexico, Brazil. Uh, so it definitely, it definitely was a, a ton of work, but it, boy, it opens your eyes and really allows you to see 
um, from a from a truly global lens, right? And not just from a US focused lens, which I think really helps me in all of my work now. What's an example of something you learned in the international, international experience of people you met or challenges you faced there that might be of interest to our audience today? Well, I, I think that putting yourselves in other people's shoes, especially when people come from different cultures, um, I think is really important. And then the other thing I would always say, you know, as hard as people think that that work travel is all glamorous and anyone who travels for work knows that is not the case at all. But I did try to always add a half a day or even a few hours to do something um, in that city that I was traveling that that was, you know, all about that culture and that city. And one of the coolest things that I ever got to do was I was in um, I was in Chengdu in China, and we were we had done um, we had done uh, Beijing first, and then Chengdu, and then it was like a quick trip. But I remember my uh, my president of the China business was like, "Let's take a few hours," and we went to the zoo. And Chengdu is really famous for the panda bears, and so we went and saw the pandas, and I actually got to hold a baby panda bear. <laughs> it was like one of the coolest things and talk about full circle. Um, I was just in New York last weekend for, for, for work. And I, I saw my family and my, my youngest brother has a daughter who's just six years old and her favorite thing. She's showing me all of her panda bears. And so I told her this story about the pandas and oh my gosh, her face just lit up. It was, it was, it was so cool. And I showed her the pictures of it. It was, it was kind of amazing. Well, that's what an opportunity. So you, you obviously love travel if you traveled on your own for six months. Uh, I do. I absolutely love it. International it experience. It's a passion of mine. So it was it was it was amazing that I was able to combine that passion with 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 work at the same time. Now, I understand you recently came back from Davos, which talk about international travel, which is <laughs> the uh, I, I guess it's the World Series of Capitalism or global uh uh, globalism. Uh, what's what's it like? I, I'm sure many most people on this call have never been to Davos, but we read about it all the time. What, what's what what is it like? What do you do there? How how do you spend your time? What's yeah, yeah. Time? So World Economic Forum um, held in Davos every year. It was actually my first time. Um, I was supposed to go, in, obviously, 21, but they didn't hold it for a couple of years. But what I'll say is, the date starts with layering because it's super cold Switzerland. It's in, it's in the mountains of Switzerland. Um, and so, you know, super cold. So it's all about layering. Um, and then it's an adrenaline rush from there, you know, think about meeting with economists, um, leaders in the public and private sector, investors, reporters, and a lot of customers, um, which is fantastic. And so I thought it was great for a number of reasons. So First, it was great to hear, especially with the uncertainty going on right now, from an economic perspective, to really hear insights from economists across the globe. And I met with economists from Europe, from Asia, from the US. And what was super interesting that I took away from those meetings specifically was that, well, I won't say optimistic, but there had been so much talk of doom and gloom and so much pessimism in the air that I was, 
I was surprised and it was across the board. They were all pretty consistent with their messaging that for sure there will be certain markets around the globe that will likely dip into recession in 23. But it was pretty consistent that the depth and length of any such recession would not be as deep or long as people had thought. And so there was some optimism there. And part of the reason for that, and I think it's interesting for all finance leaders is why I'm going to talk talk about it, was the fundamentals of the economy are in a much stronger place, right? The banks are much stronger than they were in 2008 and 29. Consumers are in a much stronger place with savings much higher. Um, China potentially reopening is going to drive some growth. And so it was pretty consistent across the board. So that was um, really a great insight that, that I have. And then the other point, which I really thought was interesting, World Economic Forum Davos is really known for tons of conversation around geopolitical, tons of conversation around economics and the economy, tons of conversation about ESG. Um, but what hadn't been really talked about at length in the past, based upon my conversations with a lot of my peers, was this, this thought about technology really becoming the business strategy for every company in this you know, race for, di for digitization. And so I thought that that was pretty, pretty amazing. And all the conversations that I had really centered around digital transformation for the C-suite. Um, and so that was, I think, a new pillar to those meetings that had not kind of had not um, had not been present as as much in the past. Um, and then I had the opportunity to to join some really cool panels. I was uh, I was part of the female quotient panel around leading during uncertainty, which hi highly relevant in this macro environment. Um, and then again, technology in a resilient world and how technology is going to play a part for leaders to really come out strong in this macro. And so it was a pretty intense, let me tell you, anyone who thinks they go to Davos to have fun has not actually gone to Davos. <laughs> it's work. Like I had, and I was only there for a couple of days because I had a I had to fly straight to our sales kickoff. Um, but I had meeting after meeting with customers, economists, um, uh, and 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 reporters throughout the time. And so it's busy. Um, and then you'd end each night with some sort of event. And I would say the highlight of, of, of my trip for me was an Ernst & Young Women in Power dinner. And so talk about coming full circle, Ernst & Young being where it started for me, and then breaking bread with some absolutely phenomenal women at EY was, was beyond a full circle moment for me, as you can imagine. So they claimed you as a proud alumni. Uh, <laughs> for sure, for sure. Well, people are beginning to uh, put questions in Q&A. And so the first two questions are related. Uh, could you talk about, you know, you have uh, your, uh, you start out an audit and I, and as, as a CPA, uh, how do you think about someone coming from becoming a CFO, either from an accounting background or not from an accounting background? Do you have favor one or the other? If you think about other people, you know, and you think about your successor, uh, what's, what's the path 
going from a CPA to a CFO and, and what if you don't have a CPA? Yeah, you know, I, I it's a great question. And I think historically, many, many CFOs came from CPA, audit bat, audit bat backgrounds. Um, if you think about what I think of historically, like what everyone thought a CFO was, you know, it's all about, you know, maintaining the, a, a, a tight rein on the checkbook, um, really reporting the news as opposed to driving the news. And so I think for a long, long time, CFOs were very much accountants uh, in, in, in their background, but certainly more and more, um, that is definitely not the path that you have to take at all. Um, and a lot of it is around the role of the CFO shifting, I think, pretty dramatically over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, and what do I mean by that? You know, no longer are we, you know, only the holders of that checkbook, but we are really the strategic partner to the CEO in driving strategy, driving growth. Um, really, we have we are one of only being the CEO who has a bird's eye view across the enterprise um, at the C-suite. And so, um, the shifting landscape has really shifted that role of the CFO. And so I think there's many different paths to CFO. I know a lot of people who've come out of investment banking. I know a lot of people, you know, who come, who come with strong MBAs. What is important, regardless of where you're starting from and where you're coming from, is making sure that you're getting a breadth of experience across the enterprise and across the finance disciplines. And I talk to my teams about this all the time. I don't know if this is a, a phenomenon of Silicon Valley in the tech world, but everyone wants a promotion every two years, right? Every two to three years. But I want to promote people who are ready. I want them to be successful in their next roles. And sometimes if you have a clear path of what you want, many times that next step is a lateral, right? I'm not going to promote you into, you know, from accounting into FP&A, but if you want to be a CFO and you come out of accounting, you better make sure you figure out a way to get some FP&A experience, some treasury experience, right? How do you think about your, the breadth of your skill set? And sometimes that means lateral moves more often than not. Be willing to do it, you know, be willing to raise your hand for a challenging assignment that might not be in your core competencies and your core capabilities, because that's where you're going to grow and learn. And once you raise your hand for those challenging assignments, people tend to tap you on the shoulder a lot more often because they know you're willing to, to work hard and, 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 and put it all out there. Well, Gina, talking about raising your hand for the next exciting assignment, we have a question from Fred who says, how did the, your, 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 uh, your manager or leader at Revlon recognized that you were capable of doing international CFO work when you hadn't didn't have any international experience. Is it something about your background or experience or or skills? What did they what did he see in you? Yeah, I think he saw so it I think he saw in me and and this is pretty consistent throughout and you know when I went from Revlon to IAC and then even at ServiceNow, I think what they saw in me was a hunger to really drive results, a hunger to roll up my sleeves 
and not be afraid to take a challenge, right? Or to do something different. Um, you know, I think the story about taking a little bit of time off and going traveling and, and me being open to new cultures and different things, I think that just came out pretty, pretty apparently when, when we met. And listen, I think sometimes it's, it is about that chemistry, right? It is about that connection that you have with that person when, when, when you're meeting with them, right? Do a ton of research. Like I am, I am, I am, everyone will tell you about Gina. I don't go anywhere unprepared. Like if I'm meeting with a customer, not only do I know, you know, everything about that particular customer from a company perspective, but the person who I'm meeting, you know, I find out everything about them. Good, good, good story in Davos. Uh, I was meeting with, with a, um, a potential customer. So not even a customer who was also trying to get some business from me. And I had my briefing doc on the woman and, you know, I went deep. I don't, I don't just read like the first two paragraphs. I went deep and I realized that we actually overlapped. She was at Expedia when I was at IAC and IAC owned Expedia. So we knew a ton of the same people. Well, let me tell you that conversation went so much better because we, we, we knew something about each other and we had a, and we had a path and a way to connect. So I think that connection is always really important. And then I think I've just, I've always, I've always been super results oriented. I'm also personable. I try to be. And so I think, you know, when you're coming into those meetings, make sure you're showing yourself and who you are, because if, if it's not a good fit, then you don't want to go there. But if it is a good fit, that connection, you know, it can't be beat. Well, making that connection, uh, being doing your homework uh, about the people before you go and being willing to take on those new challenges and being results oriented, those are all incredible character uh, features of, of your career. Uh, it sounds like you told you said that Revlon stock was a dollar a share, which must also have played into it that other people might have looked at Revlon and said, this company is going to go bankrupt. Why would I join a sinking ship? But somehow you had confidence that that it was going to make it. What, what was your thinking about the, uh, the the company itself, not just the yeah. world international CFO, but did you do due diligence on Revlon to say you thought? Of course, of course. Know. So, so you know, I. But by the way, I had a lot of friends tell me I was crazy <laughs> to go mm -hmm. there. By the way, when I left, the stock was up at like twenty eight dollars. So I met with the CEO. I understood their strategy. I understood what they were trying to do, and Revlon is just an absolutely incredible brand, right? And so I did. I did my research on the products. I understood the products as well. Um, but absolutely, you need to do your research, do your due diligence. Um, but sometimes you got to be willing to take that, take that chance and take that risk. Um, for me, getting a more broader experience outside of just accounting was very worth the risk. We have another question, Gina, from, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Love Soda who note sees that you're, you've changed roles, changed companies every five or six years. That seems mm -hmm. to pattern throughout your whole career. Is there something about that five or six year time frame that makes sense? Or is it was it coincidence or were you, did you plan to do it? And another question that's related to that is how much of you, if you look back on your career, did you plan every step or was it, uh, was it, uh, I guess, to, was it opportunistic? Yeah. So, 
I get this question a lot from early in career who are so focused on planning out all the steps. I definitely did not plan. Listen, could, could I have planned that story about taking off time with my boyfriend showing up and, and, and breaking <laughs> up? I wish I could have planned it all. Um, so it's definitely been much more opportunistic. Um, for me, what tends to happen and it tends to, and someone else, it could happen, you know, at five years. I know people, it happens at 10 or it, it doesn't happen at all. But where I feel like I have really given the most and I've, and I've, I've made my biggest impacts and I'm ready for something different and new tends to be around the six set seven year time. And so for me, the moving industries was very natural. So I talked about the reason for Revlon. When I left Revlon, I went to a company called Ingram Micro, biggest company you've probably never heard of. So Revlon, big brand, but only 2 billion in sales to Ingram Micro, 42 billion in sales technology distribution company with 7% gross margins. So scale, right? So think about, I'm always thinking about what, what can I add to my resume? What could I give and make an impact, but how can I also beef up my skill set? So that, that was all about scale, right? Oh, and by the way, I moved from New York where all my family was uh, and my husband's English. So his whole family's in London to Southern California with a two-year-old and a five-year-old in tow with no family. So talk about risks, big risk. Um, but the scale, the breadth and the scale of the company, and then it was a more media role. I was, I was owning treasury, which I hadn't owned, and investor relations um, that I hadn't owned, and tax that I hadn't owned. So it was, again, broadening my skill set across finance and then that scale piece that I hadn't had before. And so that's how I tend to think about making those moves. So they've been opportunistic. Um, and I would just say, you know, there isn't one path. And by the way, I'm fine if you want to create a pathway for yourself. But what I would say is don't get wed to only that path because then you're not open to these potential opportunities that can come out from anywhere. And so carve a path, but, but don't be afraid to kind of zig and zag a little bit, right? It's never a straight path up that much. I can promise you. So then you joined, when you joined Ingram, you came in as an executive vice president of finance and three years or so later, you were promoted to being the CFO. Yeah. When you joined Ingram, did they position the role as you had a chance to become CFO in some period of time? And you looked around and said, there's two or three of us, and I think I can beat that person. Or <laughs> it's like, you're, I think of it as you're trying out for shortstop on the New York Yankees or something. And you're saying, sure. I, I think I can win my position. For sure. So it was absolutely billed as the success, the CFO successor. So this is, so it, I had accounting, FP&A, tax, treasury, investor relations. So I, bas I basically was the deputy C CFO. Um, it was such a big, uh, complex business that they wanted to bring someone in who, who, could, who, could, who had the skill set, but could learn the business over time. Right. And so that being said, I expected that promo to happen a lot sooner than, than, than three <laughs> years. But again, sometimes... Patience is really, really important because I could have been frustrated 
after 12, 18 months. And I could have said, ah, I'm going to try something different. I guarantee had I done that, I would not be where I am today. So mm-hmm. sometimes patience is really important as, as you think about career. Fascinating. So then you're at Ingram and uh, then you made your current step to ServiceNow. Tell us a little about what some people have heard ServiceNow, but they may not know what the products are. What, tell us a little about ServiceNow and how that opportunity came up and about your role today. Yeah. So ServiceNow is a tech company that basically fundamentally helps businesses change the way they run, right? So I like to talk about it like next generation business process automation. And business process, we, we call them workflows. So think about anything that you do at work. Um, how can we make that process more seamless and automated so that you have much more of a kind of consumer grade uh, experience when you're at work in, in, in the business? So um, it's software that helps really um, drive much better employee engagement, employee happiness, productivity, efficiency, and in this day and age, with, 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 which is more important than ever, can really help drive not only that customer and employee engagement, but also a much better um, efficiency and productivity and actually cost savings. And so um, interesting, I, was, I, was, I had been at Ingram just seven years, shocker, um, and I had started thinking I was ready for the next step. And I, um, I heard that this position was open and I got called by a recruiter. And um, as soon as I met with the team, I knew I wanted this job. And, and I could have been, I could have stayed at Ingram. I was, I was set. I built that team. My peers are still some of my best friends there who I have dinner with all, all the time. I could have been really happy um, staying there, but there was just such an opportunity uh, for this company to grow. And by the way, we're, we're growing super fast. We're the first software company to get to $7 billion in revenue without acquisition. The opportunity I saw in front of us was just enormous um, that I, I just knew it was, it was the right opportunity for me. Um, and so the other piece that was really important to me was Ingram. I talk about the biggest company that you never heard of. Having the platform of a company like ServiceNow, which is a big cap tech company that's in the news all the time, having a female CFO at the helm of that company gives me a platform to really show the next generation of girls and young women that they can too achieve anything they want to. And so that was a big impetus for me to, to make the leap. Not to mention we have, you know, the best CEO in enterprise software with Bill McDermott, and he's such an inspirational leader. And the great thing about ServiceNow is the people and the culture. It's, it's hungry and humble, um, and it's all about, you know, customer first and wowing the, those customers. And so being in a company like this, I say all the time, it's absolutely my dream job, and I couldn't imagine being anywhere else. Well, what a terrific uh, story and congratulations on finding that that dream job. We, we have a question about work-life balance, which of course is particularly complex for mothers and, and women who have kids, young kids that's still at home. Uh, 
I'm sure you've talked about this often. How do you what what kind of advice do you give uh, young women or or men about work life balance? So first and foremost, and it goes back to the beginning story. Find a partner who absolutely supports you and wants to be, you know, 50-50 at home. Because if if you don't have that, it's so much harder, right? And so make sure when when you're choosing that partner, you think about you think about that and you talk about that, right? Early on. So I think that that that's first and foremost so important. I could absolutely not do what I do if my husband was not 100% supportive. And he actually does more at home than I do. He's actually a great cook. That's another thing. Find someone who cooks. <laughs> um, and then I think you just got to realize that balance is the wrong word. It's never going to be balanced. There's going to be times when, you know, it's bored in earnings week and I am all about work. And then there's going to be times when it's, you know, kids spring break. And I'm like, I'm all about the family. And then there's all the other weeks that are in between. And I got some, I got a great piece of advice earlier in my career. And when I heard it, I was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. How did I not think about it? You know, mom guilt is real, right? We've got to get rid of it. And one of the things that I started doing with my boys is I just asked them, where they wanted me to be, right? <laughs> they could care less if I'm at soccer practice or basketball practice after school, but they really want me at that game on Saturday or Sunday, right? And so what do I, I make a point of being at that game without my phone, by the way, right? And just really having that dialogue with them. And I'll tell you, my boys think it's very normal for women to work and for moms to work. Um, and they feel really good that they know that whatever's important to them will be important to me, right? And so I think it's just being okay with the fact that you're never gonna be in balance. Like balance to me is like even Steven. You're never even Steven. At some times you need to be much more focused on the job and sometimes you're gonna be much more focused at work. And just make sure that you're, doing that. And you're asking the kids and when you're with them, it's all about quality and not quantity, right? Make sure the phone's away, spend the time with them. You know, I have dinner with them most nights. And then if I have to go back on when they, when they're in bed at nine o'clock, I'll go back on, but really spending that time with them. I think it makes a big difference. I I love that simple advice. Just ask them where they want me to be. It's just uh, makes makes perfect sense. Right. It's, it's perfect, but it's so funny. I had a conversation in Davos and that women dinner event that I talked about that, that EMY. And I, I said that to someone and she's like, Gina, that's brilliant. I never thought of that. And she's got old, like, she's got teen kids now. So she's like, this is, this is going to be fantastic. And, you know, I'll follow up with her in, in a couple of months and hopefully she put that into practice, but it makes a difference. It makes a real difference. It does. Uh, so Christy has a question, an interesting question. You, with these new job changes, industry changes, role changes, going to international, going to uh, from accounting to CFO, was there ever a time where you felt you were in over your head? I know in my own experience, the, I, I joined First Boston, the investment bank, not in the training program, but I came in as a vice president from industry. 
And I was working with all these people younger than me who got the training program, who knew all the language and had to do all these Excel models. And the first week I was there, I, I went home and I told my wife, I, I don't know if I could figure this out. It was, I definitely felt that I was over my head. And then, but you know, then we, then you figure it out. But uh, did you ever have that feeling at one of the walls? Jeff, all the time. So <laughs> I'll tell you two specific stories. So I remember very, very vividly taking on this role at, um, at Ingram Micro, big role, broad. Um, and I'll tell you that I didn't have the right team in place, right? They didn't, they didn't tell me that coming in either. Um, and I remember vividly, so again, two and five-year-old, moved the whole family cross country. We were still living in corporate housing. So I was not three months in the role. And I came home one night and I looked at my husband, Luke, and I said, babe, I think I made a mistake. I'm not sure that this, that this job is the right job. And he looked at me deadpan. He's English. I wish you knew him. He looked at me. He's like, well, you better figure it out because I'm Californicated and I'm not going back East now. <laughs> and I was like, all right, where'd my supportive husband just go? But it was the best advice that he ever could give me, right? And let me tell you, it was a really tough first year. I was building, driving. I mean, I mean, there was no single source of the truth of numbers. Like it was a mess. Um, but tackling that challenge, I mean, it it was enormous. And again, I wouldn't be where I am. I would never have gotten this role at ServiceNow if not for that time at Ingram. So that that's one example. The second example I'll say is even joining ServiceNow. So brand new industry, right? Software tech, like high tech, um, big cap, right? 40 billion in, in, in market cap when, when, when I joined. Um, now 100 billion, so I'm super proud, proud of that. But oh my goodness, seven, I joined January 2020. So 70 days in, COVID hit right? So, oh my goodness, how, and by the way, new CFO, new CEO, Bill had just started like a month and a half before me. So CFO, CEO transition, global pandemic that no one knows anything, so much uncertainty. How do I help? Um, how do I get shareholders to feel comfortable and confident? How do I get our 10,000 employees, now 20,000, but 10,000 employees at that moment, we got them remote overnight, by the way, literally 24 hours and up and running because of our tech. But how do you build relationships? How do we get them comfortable with what's going on? How do I connect with my peers and my customers in this all remote work? That was overwhelming, as you could imagine. <laughs> and so... My advice is when you're feeling overwhelmed is to don't opt out, opt in all the way and take it one thing at a time, right? One thing at a time and just build up the muscle of getting those things done. And the more you get done, the more your confidence level grows and the more you can continue to do. And so if you're not feeling a little overwhelmed when you take a new job, you took the wrong job, right? I'm a huge believer, and, and this is a quote that I didn't make up. It's Ginny Romney, the ex-CEO of IBM. 
you know, growth and comfort do not coexist. And so when you push yourself outside your comfort zone, when you're feeling that overwhelm, that's when you, that's where the growth happens, right? That's kind of, and you don't feel it at the time. It just feels hard at the time. But when you come out of that, you are so much stronger and so much better for it. I say, you know, you gotta, you have to feel a little overwhelmed or else that, that, that new job is, is, is not, uh, is, is not uncomfortable enough. What a valuable uh, piece of advice. Growth and comfort do not coexist. That's, that's what it is. Terrific. So now leaders and CFOs in particular often make decisions in, under uncertainty, where it's an important decision. You don't know whether A is the best answer or B or C. Uh, could you tell us about a time in your career, maybe at ServiceNow or another company, where you made an important decision, where uh, it wasn't obvious what the right answer was and what happened? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll go back to joining um, ServiceNow, right? I mentioned early, we were, I joined and we were coming to a head with the pandemic just 70 days after I joined the company. And so we really had to lean into our people, um, our customers, our shareholders. You know, and one of our values, I talked about it earlier, is, is wow our customers. And we're always super focused on, on that. Part of also what, what we're about is we, we believe very strongly in um, environmental social ESG, environmental social governance program, especially on the social side of things. And so it was probably a week before we all went home, right? But the pandemic was raging. No one was really sure what, what was going to happen. Um, you know, Bill had the entire leadership team. So me and all of my peers um, in a meeting around a whiteboarding session. Um, and we basically said, what can we do? And what can our company do? What can our technology do to help the world in this moment in time that, that we are? And so literally in the next eight hours, we thought of um, these emergency response applications that would allow big companies, cities, the federal government to really respond to the pandemic, right? And we gave them away for free. We built them in like 36 hours and just reached out to all state and local mun municipalities about how they were managing that um, the, the pandemic. And so that process evolved from there into, okay, we now have these emergency response applications. What's next? So three months later, six months later, people were going to start to come back to the office, but we needed to make sure that it was safe. So how do we get back people back in the office safely? We had our return to work applications. And then when we finally had the vaccine, we're like, well, our platform can do the same thing for vaccine administration for state and local and federal and public sector customers around the globe. And so if you think about that, you know, highly uncertain, no one knows what's going to go on. But if you lean into your purpose, if you lean into your strengths as a company and make sure that you're always being transparent with what you're doing and why you're doing it, um, even in uncertainty. And this is actually something I had to learn because most leaders want to communicate when they have all the answers. And no one had all the answers during the pandemic. It was impossible. 
So you could have said, I'm not going to communicate anything because I don't know anything to tell them. And that would have been the absolute wrong answer. We as leaders had to get comfortable saying, we don't have all the answers. When are we coming back to the office? I have no idea, but here's how we're going to think about coming back to the office. First and foremost, employee safety. Secondly, what are the local regulations and laws around it? Third, how do our people feel about it, right? And so communicating often and transparently, even when you don't have all the answers, really an important lesson that I think I certainly learned during that period of, I think, huge uncertainty. That's a terrific story. Uh, now, I, I, we have a few more minutes. I'd like to talk about your board work, because in addition to being a very accomplished CFO at a major company, you've also served on boards of directors. So talk about that. What's what's it like to serve in these boards? How do you think about your, your board role while you're simultaneously a CFO? Yeah, so I love my board work. Um, so I'll tell you about that. But I think it's really important that you realize the difference between especially if you're like an operator, like I am, I'm a sitting CFO. So as you think about board work, when you're an operator, you have to realize that it's, it's, it's very different, right? So when you're an operator, I'm a CFO, you're operating at, you know, a hundred feet, maybe a thousand feet at the board level, you're operating at 10,000 feet. Right. And, and you need to remember that because because you need to build relationships. You need to realize that the management team manages the day-to-day. And as a board member, you're there to advise, to help set the strategy, to hold the management team accountable, to execute against that strategy. But it's not your job to, 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 to do the execution, right? And so it's about making sure that you really understand the business. And so taking time up front and learning, uh, learning what that business is all about and, and what the drivers of growth are and the drivers of success, um, understanding what the KPIs are so you can ask the right questions, right? I think as a board member, you need to make sure that you're, you're able to um, ask the right questions and understand the KPIs and read the trends of the business so that you can really hold the management team accountable for driving the execution. You know, the other big difference, you know, as a CFO, as the operator, I, you know, I have multiple stakeholders, right? My stakeholders are my customers, my employees, my shareholders. As a board member, I'm ultimately accountable and responsible to the shareholders. Now, shareholder value, you need to always keep in mind customers and employees if you're thinking shareholder value, but it is a it, it is a nuanced difference, but I think that being on the board allows me to be a much better operator because I also know what the board is looking for and how and how they're thinking. So the board work makes me a better operator. And then my operating role, I think, makes me a much better board member also. Well, you're talking about the interaction between being a board member and operator values and priorities. Uh, it, and also we talked earlier about people. Uh, both as a board member and as an executive evaluating people. You had said earlier when you joined Ingram, you inherited a team which wasn't functioning well. Could you talk about how you went about evaluating your team and deciding whether to keep people or change them or move them around and, and how that worked at Ingram? 
Yeah, I think that um, first you need to give folks a little bit of time to really understand where their strengths are. I think you need to be really open and transparent about expectations and then hold folks accountable against those expectations. Um, and if they're not performing, if they're in the wrong, many times they're in the wrong role, right? It's not necessarily that, that they need to be uh, ex exited. A lot of times, if you think about how the role has been um, laid out and the expectations, sometimes they just haven't understood what, what those were. So a lot of times it's about redefining expectations and making sure that you're leaning into people's growth areas. Um, but it's, you got to take the time to know the team. You can't come in and operate at 10,000 feet and not really know what's going on on the ground. And if you do that, I think you can pretty, pretty quickly within the first 90, 100 days, understand who's, who's operating at the level you need them, who's not there yet, but has a ton of potential. And so you work with them as, as, as a coach to get them there and who potentially might not be right. And that's never an easy conversation, but I think that, you know, feedback is something that a lot of folks still have trouble with, right? And really ensuring that you're giving constructive feedback and letting people understand where they're performing well, but where they're not, they're never gonna get better if you're not willing to have that hard conversation with them to help them grow. And so I tell, I tell my teams all the time, you know, I know it's a hard conversation to have and you think it'll just be easier to hire another person to help that person, but that's not the right answer. You've got to help them grow. These folks want to develop in their careers. And so you've got to be willing to be that coach. And, you know, sometimes coaches are the hardest, right, on, 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 on the players. And so you've got to be willing to have that, that honest, constructive feedback to help them grow. And I think if you're willing to do that, most teams are going to really perform for you. And then you build that relationship that, that, that there's mutual trust, which I think is so important. Uh, Fred's asking a follow-up question about the board of directors. Uh, how did your board opportunities come about? Did you seek it out or did you get inbound calls? You know, it's a great question. So when I joined ServiceNow, I basically said I'm not taking a board for at least a year. I need to lean into the role. Um, and I said I joined January 2020. So starting around October, November, I started getting tons of inbound calls. And I was just, it was, it, I didn't know, I didn't know, I was like so busy, I couldn't really think about it. And so over that holiday break, I kind of went back and I said, instead of being reactive to the stuff that that's coming in, let me be proactive um, and start having some conversations. And so I actually spoke, you know, in the CFO, I spoke with a lot of the bankers because a lot of the bankers know what's happening um, at the board level. And so I started just connecting with a couple of, um, of the bankers to say, hey, I think I'm going to start to, 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 to look and be open. And here's my list of the companies that are interesting to me. Let me know if you know of anything. Um, and, that's, and that's literally how um, the Roblox opportunity came about um, and also the Gong opportunity. So what I would say is, you want to be proactive. You want to, you know, you you want to think about um, how you can add value, right? Because 
you're not going to get a board role unless there's something that you really bring to the table. Um, but if there's something you bring to the table, then be picky about because board do like it's not one or two years and then you go and do something else. You know, when you commit to a board, that's eight to 10 years. Right. And so you do your due, do your due diligence um, and make sure that it's something that you can add value to. And also something that you'll learn. Like I picked Roblox. I had a couple of offers at the time and I picked Roblox because it's so different than what I do in my day job. And so finance is finance. And I can bring that audit chair hat and add a ton of value. But at the same time, I'm learning something new and, and, and interesting. And with, with, with two boys, I got a lot of cool mom points for joining that board <laughs> as well, as you can imagine. Cool mom points like that. Okay. I don't get them all good, so I take them when I can. We're wrapping up now, and we have a, a favorite last question. If you were going to write a chief financial officer playbook, what's one thing that a CFO can do tomorrow morning to help their company or their careers or their lives? That's a great question. So what I would say is really understanding all of your stakeholders and what they care about right? We talked about this earlier, like listening, communicating is really important, but you need to listen first to know where you need to communicate. Um, and so I think communicating regularly and transparently and being authentic and empathetic. Um, you know, we didn't talk about the evolving role of the CFO, but I truly believe that leadership today is so different than leadership even five and 10 years ago. And I think that building trust and leading leading from an enterprise lens um, is more important than ever. No longer is IQ and just subject matter expertise needed. The EQ part of it, the empathy um, in leading large teams is really more important than ever. And so leaning into your authenticity, really communicating well, um, you know, Bill often says, right, like, trust is earned in drops and lost in buckets. And so really making sure that you're building trust through following up on your commitments, um, being accountable. If you, if something went wrong, like you got to own it. Like that's, that builds trust much, much more so than, 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 than trying to, to hide it. And then the last thing I would say is building strong cross-functional relationships across your peer group is really important. In this day and age more than ever, you know, there's nothing that's not so cross-functional, right? I spend as much time with my chief people officer as I do with my CEO, right? Why is that? Because the talent strategy is the business strategy. If I'm the CFO focused on growth, well, we're never gonna get there if we don't have the right talent strategy and the right people. Right. And so as a CFO, you can't just think about the numbers. You've really got to think much more broadly. So building those relationships early, I think, is, is, is another way that um, you can help your company and your career. Well, Gina Mastantuno, what a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you for your wisdom and your great ideas and, and, and history. We'd love, love to hear about it. And thank you, Airbase, for sponsoring us and this terrific program path to becoming a CFO. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. Bye, everyone.